This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Michael Phillips. What's the plan? We build a shoe line around just him. I need the greatest basketball shoe that's ever been made. Who's the player? Michael Jordan. Your motor You know movies are back, Michael, when a film that seems designed in a lab for Sunday afternoon on the couch viewing can only be seen in theaters. That's from the trailer for the Ben Affleck-directed Air with Matt Damon as the Nike executive who rolled the dice on Michael Jordan. Air, part of a review roundup this week that includes Owen Wilson in paint and the Brooke Shields doc Pretty Baby, plus my conversation with director Kelly Riker and some thoughts on her latest showing up. It's all ahead on Film Spotting. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Film Spotting and welcome Michael Phillips. Great to have you here with Josh doing a little spring breaking. I don't think Harmony Korean style, but you never know with him. <laughs> that would be uh, that would l- launch this little franchise into the reality TV the contract it's been dying for for forever. <laughs> we could dream. We've got Kelly Reichert later in the show, Michael, but I know why you're really here. You cannot wait. To talk film spotting madness best of the 60s. Yes, I love I love this <laughs> sadistic exercise uh, that I think is sports related, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's based on a vaguely. sports match. Sure. <laughs> but I'll tell you, Adam, I voted every just, just as punishment for my sins. I voted every step of the way for everything. Everyone it, it, groaning like I had a like I had a I was passing something. I mean, it was just it was I never happy. But but uh, yes, I, I yes. thought, well, if these guys can have, quote, a fun, unquote, with it, I can, too. I okay. didn't. I didn't. I but I, I voted. I voted. So you've been associated with the show for something like 15, 16 years now. We've been doing madness for nine years. You finally decided to play it. <laughs> I did. I did. 
We'll take it. We started we started with 64 films from the great movie decade that is the 1960s and now we're down to two. The championship matchup is set. We'll reveal that later in the show. We do want to remind you voting in that championship match is open now. filmspottingmadness.com or just go to filmspotting.net. You can find it there. The polls close at 11 a.m. Central Time on Monday, April 10th. We did want to take a moment to have you, to implore you, to help us reach new listeners by leaving us a rating and a positive review over on Apple Podcasts. Michael, we've been getting so many kind words since we started asking listeners more diligently to support us on Apple Podcasts, and we've got a couple we want to highlight this week. Good, good. Thanks to SF Bob, especially, who called it the best movie cast out there, bar none, and to Jawu. Filling the Ebert-shaped hole in my heart. That's a fantastic way to put, it. well, anything. <laughs> but yeah. if, if Film Fine can fill the Ebert-shaped hole in anybody's heart, then it's doing some real good in the world. These folks left some kind words for us on Apple Podcasts this past week. Share your rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's talk about some movies now, Michael. We will start with Ben Affleck's Air. Full title, Air, colon, Courting, a legend. It's basically the Air Jordan's origin story with Matt Damon as Sonny Vaccaro, the man who risked his career and the Nike brand to go all in on Michael Jordan. Affleck himself is also among the cast. He plays Nike CEO Phil Knight. Viola Davis plays Michael Jordan's mother. Let's hear a bit of the trailer. 1984 has been a tough year. Our sales are down. Our growth is down. Sonny, I brought you in here to grow the basketball business. People don't know what the hell a Nike is. What's a Converse? NBA all-star shoe. There's nothing cool about Nike. You would have to have a pretty compelling pitch. I can tell them the one thing the other companies can't compete with. Our basketball division is terrible. I do not love it. Well, Michael, as I suggested earlier, I've known you a long time now, and if there's one thing I know about you, Rolling up your sleeves, having a beer, and talking about sports is maybe your favorite thing in the whole world. I talk about sports I'm occasionally. That. I'm saying that with a wink. Okay, <laughs> I'm I'm, I have been. To, I've been to more. <laughs> I have been to more uh, lacrosse and baseball and football games in the last few years, and gymnastics meets in the last few years than I did in my yeah. entire lifetime. So, uh, so, not so much a huge sports fan, but a great dad is what you are. Yeah, good enough. But yeah, no, I let's, like I like it. Let's I like talk sports. about this specific sports movie. How did you feel about Air? You know, it was it was sort of a win. I mean, I mean, it's actually a pretty good pretty good film. It's it's a uh, it, it's very straightforward, uh, and it covers about three three and a half months in the at least the docudrama life of uh, Sonny Ricardo, played by Matt Damon, uh, who's trying to convince uh, Michael Jordan and his parents to sign this shoe deal. And convince Nike head Phil Knight to come up with you know enough money to make this offer, and then and then the creation of this signature shoe. Right, uh, it's a sports marketer's dream. I think it's uh, uh, it's a lot of people's uh, you, know, you know way of kind of reliving the Jordan glory years. Um, and uh, there's there's sort of a weird a weird kind of couple of cross currents of nostalgia. I think in it, Adam, in that it's 1984. You, you have this bustling 
sort of cubicle worn here in the Nike headquarters in Oregon that just makes you, you know, if you've been sort of limping out of COVID and you used to work in a fairly lively profession like I did, <laughs> to go back and just where people kind of like run around from copier to coffee machine, you know, sort in the background, you know, I, I actually feel at this point in my life, I like to pay extras to do that if I go into the paper. <laughs> uh, but, but that's, there's some of that going on. And, and, and look, it's, it's, it's very much in my, in my view, and I like to hear kind of where it is for you, but in my view, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's roughly as entertaining as Affleck's film Argo. And it's roughly as full of crap too. I think, <laughs> I think it's in terms of like, you know, how much are we going to really, yeah. You know, kind of like kind of nuance this thing or, you know, I don't care about sticking to the historical record necessarily, but, but it, yeah, it's got kind of a zippy script and Affleck doesn't get in the way of it. And it's, it's a, it's, it's kind of a straight up undistilled workplace comedy drama. Uh, and, uh, you know, the drama being, you know, is, are they going to, are they going to make the sale? And of course we know they do. So there's, it, you couldn't have less suspense about the outcome in any movie, you know? I mean, I mean, but I, that's, I actually had, I had a good time with it and I, the the sport of basketball was brand new to me. Interesting game. (laughs) No, not really. Not really. This is, I know, Michael, (laughs) I know also that this is a terribly unfair way to start my comments, but I couldn't help thinking about it when I walked out of this film there's a social network version of air <laughs> directed by <laughs> David Fincher. Yes. Or yes. Michael Mann. Yep. That takes this. The insider, the insider. Yeah. yeah. This high stakes business world with all of this corporate intrigue and these male egos and the conflict of the doers here, the innovators, the guys who really care about and know their crafts and they're, they're up against the empty suits looking to exploit them and others in the name of a buck. And, they detach that Shakespearean sensibility to it all, give it some gravitas. Because I would say whether anyone individually cares at all about basketball or shoe brands, Jordan and Nike did change the world on a level that's certainly in the same conversation as the founding of Facebook. That That is an Affleck's approach. <laughs> the boldest thing I can say about Air is that it follows the tried and true underdog sports movie formula only none of its main characters even attempt a shot right (laughs) sink the game winner at the buzzer and this is where we'll get into your part about it maybe being full of crap and affleck whether or not he does get in the way of things or not his ambitions here and his budget relatively speaking 30 million i think are modest to your point he He's made a winner. He's made a crowd pleaser. Yeah, yeah. I found pleasing enough. Yeah, same. But but despite it being based on true events, I also bought almost none of it. <laughs> in, in, in the way to be fair, yeah. you know, with all biopics, and this is kind of the Sonny Vaccaro biopic, yeah. in the way all of them feel insufficient because they have to elide and compress and simplify. But sometimes you're, you're so buying into it and the movie's sturdy enough yeah. that- you're really surprised to learn later on maybe that, oh, that didn't really happen that way. That person didn't really exist. That person wasn't such a bad guy or that person wasn't such a good guy, whatever it might be. Right. You're not really questioning it scene to scene, moment to moment. I did find myself doing that quite a bit with quite it. Quite a bit. Yeah. Well, this is kind of in your, this is in your backyard too. I mean, sure. you come out of a sports. Have, have some experience. Yeah, you school. have some. Yes, you do. You do. Um, 
you're right. I mean, the film that I kept thinking about and I guess occasionally longing for would be uh, Bennett Miller's Moneyball in that in that it's obviously takes it completely. It's the complete opposite economic approach to the problem at hand, which is like how 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 little money can we spend and still get decent results? I mean, I would not want to revisit Moneyball now because we're all living with that kind of corporate thinking right now if you, if you happen to work in a corporate realm. I mean, this film is all about just trying to like hammer on the boss until, I mean, there's a line somebody, I think Damon says it, we need to increase spending, you know, on, right. and it's like spend it to make it. Um, it. That is the opposite of the Moneyball approach. I mean, there's certain other things that I really, I think are just like the big rousing speech that Damon gives us. You know is coming. But Carol that is, is treated with such a ridiculously straight face. I, I, it's it's just you kind of can't believe it, it it doesn't tip into parody and i suppose for some people it will um the way they actually handle uh jordan on camera it, to me is is the most specious element in that clearly either contractually or otherwise they made the right. decision to all right we have to keep him completely out of this this treatment i'm okay with this but you can't sell it as a michael jordan movie. i mean literally can't literally no face i mean you You'll see never him see his face i mean you see him you see him you know he's talked about endlessly obviously uh, he's talked about you know we see archival footage on the on the you know from the north carolina basketball games you know obviously all of that I mean, uh, beyond that he's basically like jesus in ben-hur you see glimpses of this saints walking among us uh, uh, but from a very discreet uh, acceptable distance right <laughs> and you know there's there's elements of that that i think are kind of nonsense and but uh, again like argo like affleck you know the uh, the uh, i would have to say you know is that you know it's one of uh, one of affleck's other pretty good movies like this mm-hmm. one you know it's you just there's kind of a kind of a straight ahead barreling quality that is that is you know he's kind of got a few things down as a director and he hasn't made that many movies, but he, but but he's clearly he's clearly he started he started well, and he's you know I, I don't know if he's ever going to get rid of the corn in his diet, you know, <laughs> as a filmmaker. But I don't know; it's good enough for me yeah. in this case. It helps that you've got someone like Matt Damon who can sell most moments with more than enough conviction for the average audience, and for me certainly in this case. But the thing that Affleck does here that I think plays into what you said about maybe a little too much corn. And the thing that really did give it a sense of flimsiness Mm. that I I think hurt it, a a choice they make that completely backfired is to really play up the 1980s-ness of it all. The soundtrack in particular, this is wall to wall hits of the day. Yeah, that's where the budget. Every that's where the budget went. That's where the it budget must went. Have, right? <laughs> like, are they trying to make money later on selling this on Spotify or something? Every transition scene, character introductions, background music in the car, any chance they get, and even moments that really shouldn't have it, they load it with. You know, you're going to hear Sister Christian like you do in the trailer. You're going to hear all these songs that were popular from the time, whether they really have anything to do with what's going on. Right, on right. In that moment or not, it it feels and maybe this was the point. Maybe this was the the idea Affleck had knowing he's got this this very 80s movie that that is really about this this fundamental point in pop culture. It's more music video almost than than film. And that shot you see everywhere and and in the trailer, which I think only appears in the movie in the credits 
sequence for some reason. It's kind of random of Affleck as Phil Knight. He's got the curly hair. He's sitting at his desk and he's got that gaudy red and blue tracksuit on. Right. And even gaudier sunglasses. The sunglasses, looking, yeah. Yeah, and he's looking right at the camera. It just felt to me like that was an appropriate calling card for the movie because while there there's some heart to it and there there is something substantive about what these characters achieve. It kind of felt like dress up too. Yeah, very much so. And I think, or, or maybe dressing down. If you're looking at Affleck's, I, this is this is just speculation, but uh, and it's also snide speculation. But you have like Affleck and Damon playing, uh, let's say, marginally less photogenic actual people. I mean, when you look right. at when you look at mm-hmm. you know when you look at you know the real. Uh, Sonny Bacaro, yeah. he's, you know. It makes a point of his weight. That, yeah, yeah. And and he, Damon kind of flunks the Italian test. And uh, uh, <laughs> and uh, that's whatever. You can you can either fuss about that or not. But, uh, I mean, but tellingly, uh, there was an HBO film about Vaccaro that was, that was in development with James Gandolfini playing the part. And it, it didn't end up getting filmed. But um, that's more of the ballpark we're really in here. Um, so it's, it's, it's kind of got, it, it sort of stretches and strains a bit to kind of get to kind of like figure out a, a little bit about how much, uh, you know, how much the, how much fun you're going to have with these characters in this story. I don't really want to see it taken more seriously or treated as a more triumph of the marketing spirit or the human spirit or whatever spirit you're thinking it's triumphing in. Yeah, I, I, if anything, the, the bits I didn't like so much are, are when it did go absolutely all in on that stuff. Cause it's kind of a, it's an embrace of capitalistic triumph that I, I'm not, I don't love, you know, uh, at least without a little, a little, I mean, that's the thing about Moneyball. It's funny. It's all about like, you know, how little money can you, you know, can you actually pay your people and hold back and still get it. But that film has such great kind of like uh, patience and restraint. And this film just get it out of the gate. Boom, boom, boom. And they're flying through it. You know, it's a pretty decent script. uh, And, and, you know, it's not treated, for a grander experience than it is, but except for the treatment of <laughs> Jordan as, which did give me kind of a Jesus and Ben Hur, uh, you know, yeah. overtone. Air is currently playing in wide release. If you have seen it or get to see it in the theaters and would like to take issue with anything we said, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. I will only forward the positive comments to Michael. I promise Michael. Next up, we're going to talk about paint. Another one that's inspired by true events, if you will. We have a Bob Ross-style public TV art instructor and personality who is living the dream. Carl Nargle is his name, played by Owen Wilson. And he is living his best life until a younger, more talented artist takes over his gig. She's played by musical theater vet Sierra Renee. The film was written and directed by Britt McAdams. Let's hear a little of Owen Wilson as Carl Nargle. Our goal is pretty simple. I want to help you get what's in here and just splash it onto there. Don't worry, it's not rocket science. It's harder. Thanks for going to a special place with me. Carl Narkel. Cut it. That tree is probably too tall. Brace yourself, you are going to get some calls. About that. 
So, Adam, were you familiar with with Bob Ross before this? Because I was not. I, I'm ashamed to say. Really? Yeah. So, literally, if someone said Bob Ross to you, you didn't conjure the image of the hair, the soothing voice, none of it. No, everything you're talking about is describing Ben Affleck in in air. So. <laughs> You're right. You're right. Yeah, I was definitely familiar. I feel like going back to being a young kid and I would be at my babysitter's house and (laughs) public television, Iowa public television was just sort of always on in the background. And I definitely got a decent fix of Bob Ross. No kidding. Okay. Yeah. All right. So if you're being, if you're being exposed to Bob Ross here for the first time in the form of this portrayal by Owen Wilson. What did you think? Did you feel like you missed out? Did you wish you had seen some of it in the moment? Well, I went back and saw some of the actual Bob Ross, the joy of painting segments. They're all, you know, you can, how many seasons on YouTube can you, you know, watch if you want. And, uh, I've decided to retire early and just spend the next 19 years actually, actually doing a full, a full run of them. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, he's a fascinating, phenomenon in a way and uh and the fact that there's this netflix documentary on some of the real life drama behind uh some the financial and relational aspects of the guy's life you know i'd like to see that sometime nick allen wrote a good review for uh, rogerebert.com um when that came out but uh going in cold you know uh you know i found it you know okay (laughs) Mm -hmm. i don't know i i to me it's got kind of an interesting comic tone because it's got you're talking mm-hmm. about uh, a, a piece that is very much of its place and it's got a lot of a lot of Vermont jokes and then it's been a while since I've seen a movie with a lot of Vermont jokes <laughs> even though they filmed over in New York but uh, but uh-huh. uh, you know I like this somebody mentions the Burlington Museum of Art and the whole piece basically takes place in Burlington and Carl just has this kind of moment of like, ah, if you're a true artist living above Pittsfield and below St. Albans, that's where your paintings are. You know, there's lines that are just like yeah. unbelievably specific. So mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot of that. Um, and I did find that that as as all the all the kind of competition kind of bubbles up with this newcomer um, who's kind of zo- yes, who's Ambrosia is basically zooming Carl in the ratings. Uh, she can paint a little more quickly than Carl and, and actually has for, for various reasons, because a much broader range of subjects as Carl can only paint Mount Mansfield in different, uh-huh. you know, sun, sunrise, <laughs> sunset, different season. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of this is quite witty, uh, uh but it, mm-hmm. you know, some of the competition and some of the kind of the feelings in this small time, um, you know, PBS station and, and in Burlington, it felt, it felt a little like the most, uh, the most timid decorous version of Anchorman you could possibly make, you know what I mean? <laughs> Just in terms of that yeah. sort of like, uh, but I did think, you know, it was almost fatally mild from my view. And I mm-hmm. think if the whole movie is kind of pitched to this deliberate and, and strategic kind of murmur, very quiet murmur that Owen Wilson delivers everything in, which comes straight out of the Ross playbook, as I found out, uh, uh, there's, there are times, a lot of times, I think in watching paint where I, I, I did feel like we, we need to kind of, you know, we need to kind of tighten the screws and kind of find a way to make this scene not move exactly the same way as the previous three <laughs> and all that. So, you know, like, okay, but, yeah. you know, but uh, did you have a better I, reaction? I get it, but I did have, I did have a slightly better reaction than you. It sounds like and In fact, that, 
that murmur might might be the linchpin of it all for me. First, I do want to digress and say that on film spotting 1827, when we do our top five Vermont jokes in movies, you'll definitely <laughs> be the guest. So book it. Let's get time on your calendar now. <laughs> it's inevitable. But I I appreciated not just Owen Wilson's commitment, but the movie's commitment to Carl as a soulful, soothing silly artist and mm-hmm. what i mean is i think the obvious joke would have been for carl nargle the tv character to be just that a character that that carl plays when the red light goes on and when the red light goes off and he walks off set he's just a total monster sort of larry sanders style or maybe that ricky gervais show extras and I felt like that might be where the movie was going based on the opening scene. And I probably would have been well enough along for the ride, but he he's walking us through one of these paintings and we see how everyone on the set is reacting to him. And as soon as he's done, the station manager, I think Steven Root's character puts puts his jacket on for him right around his shoulders and all the women are babying him like he's this prima donna. So that's where I did think it was going to go. But Carl is just always Carl. His his seductions end with paintings, not sex. He doesn't ever raise his voice above that murmur, even when he's legitimately angry. And when he does finally let go, I think this is the best joke in the movie. And I, I don't want to completely spoil it here. It's not so much about expressing rage mm. as trying, you'll know what I mean, as trying a different form of expression with paint. And even, then, even then, the result is the only result it could possibly be because he's Carl Nargle. That was my favorite joke. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, it, I think people should give it a shot. I mean, I mean, there's something, what I would not do, I would, I would change many things if I ran the zoo, I suppose, with this movie. But <laughs> what I would not do is I would not introduce uh, anything like a two-faced or cynical edge to the guy at all. I mean, yeah. then you got yeah. no movie. You literally would have mm-hmm. no film, and you'd have to start asking the question, like, why Why did we make it, or why did we even choose to film the script? It's got it's got scene to scene. There are there are moments, especially with Michaela Watkins on camera, who I, I think is always good. Uh, at, at where where you where you get the kind of just a, just enough vinegar, a, enough of a kind of an impatience underneath something because I mean, there's for reasons you'll find out if you see it. I mean, this is that's the key relationship in the film. It goes back about twenty years, uh, the relationship between Watkins and Wilson's characters, um, and you know the the movie takes it. Is trying to take it just seriously enough within the comic context to to make you hang in there and and and, yeah. and care. And, you know, it's I. This is why tweeners are so damn hard to talk about. You know, as I always I tell the students, whoever whoever I'm teaching at the moment, it's like if, if to write a mixed review that doesn't just die on its feet. You know, this is this is the thing here. But this is an interesting tone question because it's like they are just trying to establish a tone of comedy that goes with the, what's on the page. And I, I think actually the script is pretty good. And I think the director uh, who, who wrote it <laughs> is, is in some ways letting himself down. I, I don't think he's quite got the knack he does yet as a writer. Yeah. I do think there are some not only funny loving shots at Vermont, but also at, at public broadcasting, those <laughs> jokes work for me <laughs> overall. And I did really like a new face to me. Sierra Renee as Ambrosia, who is another character who doesn't have that kind of cynical edge to her. You're right. The movie 
movie doesn't need it. Competitive edge, but not cynical, right? Competitive, exactly, but not cynical. She's, like him, just someone really trying to do her best. And she doesn't want to hurt anybody. She isn't overly striving or ambitious. And you mentioned Michaela Watkins, who I agree is really good here. And thinking about one of my favorite jokes with her in the movie taps into that lack of cynicism and how that's another thing about the film that I can praise and why I think ultimately I went for it. We get a flashback where she's talking about a fling she had with a delivery driver to the studio. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is. And, and she says something like, I didn't get the exact line, but she says something like, he lavished me with attention. <laughs> and that attention, as we see, is her just sitting at the reception desk and him coming in day after day to deliver packages. Smiling. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and he's smiling at her, right? But he probably smiles at literally everyone who sits behind the reception desk at the businesses that he comes into. I thought it was funny because he's obviously just doing his job. She's just doing hers. It isn't exactly a courtship here. So she's she's either willfully misremembering or you know she's trying to make it something more grandiose than it was. But you also kind of believe that it's not that. You believe that it's probably the way she actually felt about that. Mm -hmm. It's not just a joke at the character's expense. It's actually about the way she processes how she felt. Yeah, yeah. And it really did feel like attention to her. It did. I mean, the movie's getting there in those those impulses, I think. Just like, like I I certainly appreciate the fact that they didn't turn Ambrosia into just a you know, a, a sort of sort of a, a caricature a- adversary where it turns into kind of a one-upsmanship, tit-for-tat mm-hmm. sort of thing like you had with Anchorman, not to bring that up again. But the, uh, you know, that that would, again, this is a much smaller, calmer picture. This is the calmest sex comedy ever made. Now, yeah. that's, that, that's not that's necessarily... going on the poster, yeah, Michael. Okay, it's not, it's not necessarily a strong virtue for that genre. Uh, and I do wonder if... if, this is, if if there wouldn't be, this is there's no way to put this without sounding like a total horn dog. But if there wouldn't be a better way, a, a different film certainly to get out of it. If you just actually went, you know, okay, let's get the R rating, not the PG, yeah, and just try to uh-huh. energize some of the some of this sexual activity that's that's alluded to in in this telling of it. But you know, I I don't know. It is what it is. It's 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 very. But yes, yeah. I stand by that. It's the calmest sex comedy ever made. One last bit. I want to single out another performance I really liked. A new face to me here again, but had to look it up immediately after. Lucy Fryer. From Australia. Plays, she's, she from Australia. She's from okay. Australia. Well, yeah, she's very good. She she plays Jenna. And on IMDb, this is her first film role. She has two TV series credits listed, but that's it. And she plays kind of the younger woman in the studio who we don't know exactly what she does. She's an administrative assistant of some kind they right. make a joke at some point about how many pages she can fax, but she's kind of the current love interest of Carl Nargle. Even if he's not fully committed to her, they definitely have one very memorable non-sexual encounter <laughs> together. And I just thought her, her affability and her natural comic instincts and timing were kind of off the charts here. I hope to see her in a lot. She, of same. Movies. She's got a little bit of a, a Jenna Fisher quality to her actually, yeah. I think from, uh, from the office and, and uh, now, you know, that's the thing. There's, there's some good, there's some familiar faces like Steven Root, uh, Michaela Watkins. There's, there's some new faces in there. I, I just, I just wish that a different director had directed this director's script. I guess that's if I had to break it down like that, 
that's how I break it down. Paint is currently playing in limited release. We've got one more for you, a documentary, the new one on Hulu. It's a two-parter on Hulu called Pretty Baby Brooke Shields. It's directed by Lana Wilson, who considers Shields' early career as an actress and model in films like Louis Maul's Pretty Baby and The Blue Lagoon, as well as a series of Calvin Klein jeans ads that sexualized her from a very young age, though it does cover the expanse of Shields' career and her life, looking now back on her experiences as a young model and actress. Here's a bit of that trait. You just didn't go anywhere that somebody wouldn't know Brooke Shields. The most photographed woman in the world. Iconic American beauty. Object of desire. A sexualized child model. Exploitation. Vulnerable. I was on the cover of Time magazine as the face of that whole era. Who decides that? You know, it's funny. You asked me about Bob Ross and whether or not I grew up with him on TV. I certainly grew up with Brooke Shields. I was thinking about it watching this film. And if you'd asked me as a kid in the 80s who Brooke Shields was, I, of course, would have known immediately who she was by name and by face. If you asked me to explain really who she was or what she did, I don't know that I could have articulated it. She was sort of one of those people in the 80s who was, it seemed to me, famous for being famous. I learned a lot from Pretty Baby. What about you? Same. I mean, it, it is really sobering. I mean, I watched a lot of this two-part documentary. It's about, you know, two hours and change, on the, you know, if you add up the two parts. Uh, I watched a lot of it with just sort of a, just a cold creeps, you know, just a pit know. in my stomach about, about exactly, and it's good to be reminded how not that many years ago, somebody like that at that age as a preteen, was being, you know, kind of like skeezed up by one talk show host after another, just asking questions that, you know, could could either get you canned, rightly so, today, you know, or or just we would have to give anybody who's even the whiners about, quote, woke culture, unquote, would have to get anybody's back up just about like, holy moly, uh, you know, the uh, – just, just the explo- exploiting the sensuality of a child, uh, you know, God knows it's still going on in every which way in the media. But there's a moment in the documentary when Barbara Walters is interviewing Terry Shields, uh, and uh, this is her mother, who's, uh, uh, as we learn later, uh, you know, is, is, is a very complicated character, very complicated relationship with her daughter because she's a raging alcoholic, and you know, it's it's a you know, Brooke is the real caretaker in the Shields duo. Um, the, Walter says, are, are you not exploiting the sensuality of a child, unquote, uh, asking Terry, uh, you know, by cast, letting her do things like Pretty Baby or these Calvin Klein jeans ads, which are just salacious in a way that is just icky considering the age of the girl. And And her answer is, well, if that's all I was doing, then yeah, I probably yes. Yeah, I am exploiting the sensuality of a child, but that's not all I'm doing. And just to, just to kind of hear things like that, and just kind of oh well, shrug it off, da da da. And I don't know. It's it's a really, I think, telling reminder about how so much of the stuff just kind of went in one eye and out the other, and it was all all kind of feeding this miserable image of of uh, you know. And and for me, there was actually the real revelation is that somebody mentions that the screenwriter of Pretty Baby, Polly Platt. Now it's not a film I've seen. I've never seen Pretty Baby. Have you? 
I haven't either. Yeah. And, and in fact, I've never seen Blue Lagoon or Endless Love. So maybe like you, uh, I just, you know, this is a lot of this is like, Jesus, you add them all up. And it's like the extent of that image just being sold over, packaged over and over and over at these, at this young, this like really, like really frighteningly young age. But Polly Platt, the screenwriter of Pretty Baby, was making kind of a, a critique of 70s Hollywood and how they were treating girls and women, um, as well as how these women were being depicted and treated in a story that is like, okay, it's the bordello in New Orleans 70 years earlier, right? So uh, that's an interesting dichotomy. And whether, and it's, I guess it's a question that kind of dogs Pretty Baby now, the Louis Mal film. You know, is it to what degree is it just absolutely feeding into and recycling these images or critiquing them a little bit? I, and and Brooke Shields throughout Adam, I think, is just you just ask yourself, you know, how did she live through this? And and found her voice, finally found her voice to just speak out when she needed to on everything she wanted to, and that's and she, she had none of that in her childhood, and and no protectors on set, and all of that. It's just yeah, it's sobering as hell. You mentioned so many examples of all of the complexities of some of these situations and the conflicted feelings that someone could have. And this this whole film does feel like it's a proper interrogation of those things. And it's not necessarily trying to come up with easy answers. It can't. There aren't easy answers. We can look back on certain things, certainly, and shake our heads and we can say that was wrong. But there's a lot of things that happen we look at and we can understand how even Brooke herself has a certain ambivalence about it and can can understand that maybe certain things were wrong or maybe she was rushed into that or it was improper, but also she has pride in some of the work. I feel like the whole movie is really reckoning with the the complex questions that she Brooke Shields is still reckoning with today, which is why there's a scene at the end of part two that's that's really illuminating where she's talking to her daughter. She has two daughters now at the dinner table, and they're talking about how they view these scenes and what feels right and what feels wrong and what might have been wrong mm -hmm. then feels different now. Again, I see the the movie is really being part of that process. And even those those Calvin Klein commercials. She can look back on those and say, as she does in the film, the way she approached it, Richard Avedon's doing the the photography, is is shooting it. It was it was taking a unique approach to commercials at the time. She was going to get to really act in the commercials and it would test her verbally and 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 physically. Mm -hmm. And you can understand as a 15-year-old why that would be such an interesting challenge and why you would want to be part of that. And so many people at the time tried to blame her for what they saw as the shortcomings or the the pitfalls, the the negative things that these ads were bringing into the culture. When of course it should have been shining the light on on someone else entirely. But I, I just appreciated how accepting Lana Wilson as a filmmaker is of the complex dynamics at play in all of these situations in her life, and how accepting Brooke Shields is. Of herself, looking back and understanding the the kid that she was, and and really trying to be true to who she was intellectually and emotionally. Yeah, no, that's a good, that's absolutely right. And and I mean, it's it's, it's in a funny way. There's a moment where uh, she, um, somebody's quoted on camera. I forget who's being interviewed and saying that you know that people are packaged as symbols for advertising. You know, telling that no surprise there. 
but we have a deep connection to the representations around us. And that's why celebrities are used for endorsements, he says. If they touch something, their magic comes off on that thing. Of course, this is Air and Michael Jordan in a nutshell. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And that's the kind of exploitation we can live with, you know, as a culture. Uh, and he can certainly live with it financially. And this is exactly almost virtually the opposite of what she had to go through uh, with, you know, with uh, with her with with a with a, lar- a largely unwanted you know tsunami of celebrity at a very young age and as she says one of the one of the most heartrending things that uh, Brooke Shields says in this documentary is it's very simple being on a movie set was the safest place I could be emotionally you know I mean when you have an unreliable very unreliable volatile mother and that's it uh, uh, father distant you know separate the, the parents were divorced. Yeah, you know, not not without love, uh, the relationship, the mother daughter relationship, but uh, right. but it, it, it threw her into the kind of this this hornet's nest over and over and over. And just to hear these details about like the director on Endless Love, Franco Zeffirelli, you know, resorting to twisting one of her toes hard enough to really get to almost make her cry on camera, just because that's a close approximation to the sexual ecstasy look on her face that he wants for a certain shot. Okay. Well, there you go. Yeah. And yeah, no, but, it's, but it it's, goes back, it's rough. It goes back, it goes back just briefly. It goes back. Brooke Shields was put in the position of a half of the actresses in old Hollywood. They were the, they were the primary breadwinners for whatever family unit they grew up in. And that's what we hear and learn from you know, Brooke Shields, as she's telling us, is, is that, you know, if I got that if I, early on, if I got that job, if I got that commercial, we could get a new car, you know, and that's it. That's, yeah. a, you know, manager, mother. And that's the that's the, the this is the income stream and, you know, the right or wrong and the burdens of that. You know, that's really what sort of you feel every minute. And it is so hardening just to hear and see how she managed to weather so much of this adversity. I, 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 I like yeah. I like this. I like this documentary quite a bit. Yeah, I did as well. And as we've hopefully expressed, it's it's a profile of Brooke Shields and that it it covers her life and career, but it it has a real point of view. It it wants to expose and explore this system that objectifies and exploits women with with her story as the vehicle for it. And it was such a system, in fact. I mean, maybe the line that sticks with me the most, I don't remember the exact scenario or circumstance that she's recalling, but she says something like I just didn't know that was even possible. I didn't know that was even possible. I could say no to that or I could push back against that. It's just, it's so ingrained. It's such a part of our culture and the stakes are so high for her. As you just said, right? So much is on the line in every part of the dynamic with her mother, right? including their, their very existence because she's the breadwinner. How do you, how do you push back against something and potentially risk everything you have when the stakes are that high, but also when pushing back is something that's actually fundamentally unimaginable. Right. It's not even something she, she at that point would conceive of. And that, that so many young women today can conceive of their agency and understand the choices that they can make and how in control they can be. It's, it's because of the, the path that people like 
Brooke Shields have paved, sometimes unintentionally and having to withstand that and go through it, but sometimes as we learn quite intentionally as well with some of the things that she has fought for and some of the causes. I really like that you you see that scene in the kitchen, the late scene you mentioned earlier, the play out and, you know, with, with, you know, two or three minutes of conversation, it doesn't, it doesn't have the, the highlights, you know, quality. It feels like they're actually, she's trying to find out as a mother, you know, what they think, you know, what's the difference between what she went through and what, you know, uh, millions of millions every day are putting putting now uh, you know whatever the age putting on tiktok that might be considered a little salacious or revealing or something mm-hmm. uh and you know what is the difference and it, it was a, it's a really good that's a good on the fly primer about how to listen to your kids and just keep asking questions not coming up with answers and and there and there's the husband right there at the end of the table saying, "I'm not I'm not talking because I'm Being learning. Silent. I am learning." <laughs> yeah. yeah, smart smart choice there. And there you are, Michael Phillips, being a good dad again. Pretty Baby, Brooke Shields is on Hulu. If you see Pretty Baby, Paint or Air, and agree or disagree with our thoughts, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. What if y'all do structural damage? Structural damage is kind of the point. This is destruction of federal property. Terrorism. American Empire calls us terrorists and we're doing something right. That's from the trailer for How to Blow Up a Pipeline, which opens in limited release this weekend and expands next weekend, including here in Chicago. The film's about a group of young environmentalists who, as the title suggests, set out to sabotage an oil pipeline. Michael, I feel like I've heard some pretty good buzz, some good reviews since this film debuted at the Toronto Film Festival last fall. I'm looking forward to seeing it. You? Same. You know, I'm always uh, interested in a film of quality. (laughs) There you go. But no, I am. I'm, I'm psyched to Ideally, see it. Yeah, I'm psyched yeah. to see it. I'm we will see. have a review of it next week on the show once Josh Larson returns. And we will get to the third title in our six-film Sight & Sound Top 100 Marathon. So six big blind spots from the recent Sight & Sound poll results the film that is up next is Rainer Werner Fassbender's Ali Fear Eats the Soul. Michael, this marathon so far has been in a word, devastating after watching Mizuguchi's Sancho the Bailiff and Douglas Sirk's Imitation of Life. I mean, maybe the two saddest movies ever made. Yeah. Well, what's, what's ahead with Fassbender? Oh, you're going to be, it's got the blithe gaiety of the young girls of Rochefort. No, it doesn't have any of that. It's, <laughs> it's of course uh, you know, it's, it's based on a Cirque film indirectly, uh, uh, all that ever heaven allows. Fassbender basically, you know, kind of reworked it for his own ends. I, I, I'd like to, I'd like to hear what you guys think of it. I just caught up with it myself recently and I'm not particularly well schooled in Fassbender's films. It, it seemed a little minor compared to the ones of his that I really responded to. Mm-hmm. And I come at Fassbender the whole other way because through his plays first, when I was writing about theater at the time in the eighties, you know, I'd seen a lot of productions of some of his plays that traveled a lot, uh, in the States back then. So, but yeah, but We'll see. You know, sight and sound can't be wrong, can they? They can't possibly be wrong. They can't be wrong. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm with you. All that next week on Film Spotting, and we will crown officially the new Film Spotting Madness Best of the 60s champion. We do have a fun giveaway this week, Michael. Unfortunately, it's open only to our U.S. listeners. Apologies to the rest of the world. But this promotion comes to us from... 
our friends at Warner Brothers celebrating its 100th anniversary. We've got a three-film bundle of classic movies available for the first time on 4K Ultra HD. We're going to give away five codes. The one code gives you access to all three films. Nice. The three films are Humphrey Bogart in The Maltese Falcon, Paul Newman in Cool Hand Luke, and James Dean in Rebel Without a Cause. Not not bad. Not bad performances. Not bad when it comes to those films. Again, five codes to give away. And to have a chance at winning, we're going to pick five winners at random. All you have to do, email feedback at filmspotting.net. In the subject line, put Warners. And in the body of the email, since, you know, it's still film spotting madness season after all, we're going to go simple here or not so simple as the case is here. Rank those stars in order. Bogart, Dean, Newman. Now that's that's alphabetical, but <laughs> rank them rank them in order of preference. Uh, your favorite, oh. your favorite at the top. Ow. And if if you want to apply the film spotting producer Sam Van Hallgren incinerator approach, you get to keep all of that actors, the number one actors, movies for posterity, the filmographies of the other two, they're gone forever. Nobody <laughs> ever gets to see them. He's Michael. got such a he's got a very uh apocalyptic approach to these he's, he's all about <laughs> he's, stakes he's, there has to be high stakes <laughs> so let me get, so what's your ranking well, i mean it's well, got to well, be well, newman first sure. right so it's, it's it's bogart uh dean uh newman and brennan right walter brennan yeah and walter brennan okay so it's those four <laughs> uh-huh. um, yeah so incinerated the other the other I'd probably, you know, is it going to... Whose films can you not live without, Michael? You know, you could Dean just made a handful. I, I, I'd i probably go Bogart, mm. but that's not going to surprise anybody, you know? Even that's not far enough no. back for me, you know? <laughs> no, I, yeah. I, I, I'd i probably go Bogart. I'd probably go and Bogart. it's close. I'd probably go Bogart. It's close with, with Bogart and Newman. I, I don't know that I could... I don't know that I can pick Bogey over Newman, especially having just recently caught up with HUD. Not that I needed anyone to to tell me or I needed another example of Newman being great on screen, but HUD is really one of his all-time best. So I think I'm ranking Newman highest, but we want to know how you would rank them. Again, we're not going to judge you based on your actual listing though i mean behind the scenes we might judge you but we're <laughs> quietly we're, judging. We're gonna we're, yeah we'll quietly judge you but we'll award that prize pack one of those codes to five random winners and announce them here on an upcoming show again the contest available to all of our u.s listeners build your collection of cinematic classics now available for the first time in stunning 4k ultra hd you mm. can get maltese falcon Cool Hand Luke and Rebel Without a Cause. This week over on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, they've got only one of my 10 favorite films of all time, according to a show that we recorded together, Michael, when we did our sight and sound top 10 list, Richard Linklater's Before Sunrise. And they've paired that with a new film, the feature debut from UK director Rain Allen Miller. It's called Rye Lane, premiered at Sundance earlier this year. And as of last weekend is available now on Hulu. We we caught up with a bunch of stuff for this show, Michael. I could not make time for Rye Lane, but I'd really like to, especially because I'd also I'd also like to hear their conversation. You're a fan. I'm a fan. I liked it. it it's it's uh, it's 
it's really it's, it, you know, you cannot take a, a, a rom-com that basically works in five different directions at once. You can't take that lightly. It is too hard to make a decent rom-com, apparently, <laughs> you know, based on the evidence. But no, it's really, it's worth seeing. Absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, catch the, up with it when you can. The plot, just in case anyone's wondering, well, what's the connection to Before Sunrise? Two 20-somethings, both reeling from bad breakups, connect over the course of an eventful day in South London. So sounds a little familiar, but I'm sure adds its own wrinkles. And we know that it's Michael Phillips recommended. The next picture show. Looking at cinema's present via its past is available every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. I did also want to throw out a quick plug for our friend, Josh Larson, who is at Ebert Interruptus in Boulder, Colorado, or will be soon and is having a meetup with listeners. You still have a chance to RSVP. We have a link in our show notes for this episode at filmspotting.net or also right at the top of the main page at filmspotting.net Friday, April 14th. Michael, he's getting together with Boulder or surrounding area base listeners to talk movies, have some drinks. You know, oh, it's always man. fun hanging out with film spotters. I would totally do that meetup because, you know, Josh, he's going to be lightheaded. It's, it's a high elevation. He's going to have, he'll probably have a beer. You know, he, he might uh-huh. say, he at might least. say stuff that he never, you'd never hear at, a, at sea level down here. You just would. Yeah. So, yeah I think make, it's likely. Yeah, I think if it's you're likely. anywhere near it, go. <laughs> This is blasphemy. This is madness. This is absolute madness. This is madness. But this is absolute madness, Ambassador. Why should you build such a thing? Madness. This is Sparta! Yes, it's championship week here. Film spotting madness, best of the 1960s. Michael Phillips is here. You know it's such a big occasion that noted film spotting madness hater <laughs> Michael Phillips is here, but he's been participating in the best of the 60s. I know you're waiting until we get to best of the 30s, a few more years, and we'll do it. <laughs> you can there. even be on the seating committee, yeah, Michael. Right. <laughs> I'm sure you you would like to be, but we're going to give you our final four results and that championship matchup. A reminder, the polls are open. You can vote now at filmspotting.net or filmspottingmadness.com. And the polls close on Monday, April 10th at 11 a.m. We had two matchups in the final four. Four films. Michael. Yep. Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey Mm -hmm. versus Billy Wilder's The Apartment. Hitchcock's Psycho versus, yes, another Kubrick. Dr. Strangelove. I do want to know how you voted, Michael, in this final four, but I also want to know, or I should say, I want to hear you excoriate us for those four being our final four. Can you really, can you really question us or did it work out? No, did film no, spotting I, listeners I, do I, well here? You know, I, f- I feel like if you're going to ignore the rest of the world, just stick with the English language stuff. Yeah, that's fine. Hey, a yeah, no, lot of foreign language films. All right. According to some listeners, too many too foreign many. language films okay, okay. in this, this round of film spotting madness. Uh, well, I, 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 since I'm your captors uh, on this format, I finally, you know, I finally decided just, do the voting and go through the pain. I voted every sure. step of the way, every step of the way. And in fact, I voted with the people, your people. You did. Our people. Yes, I did. I, I voted for Our 2001 people. and Psycho over Strangelove. That was a, that was a toughie. Um, okay. So, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I mean, it's interesting. It's just in that if you look at 2001 
versus Psycho, where Psycho, you could really say, was hugely influential in terms of just getting a, a different degree and a different tone of violence on the screen. 2001, not as influential, just simply monumental, <laughs> you know, which is not monumental. the same thing. Um, and I, I'm, it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting, uh, you know, torture, torture experiment you guys go through with this, you know, the, yeah. the, the bracket, but, <laughs> that's, uh, but yeah, that's no, I, I, went with, I, I went with the people. I'm a man of the people. Let's go. You know? Okay. Well, let's, let's get to those results. First, a little bit of feedback, Dave Allen on 2001 versus the apartment. He said, okay, I've held my tongue long enough. Ever since I first saw 2001, I love it when listeners admit these kinds of things, Michael. I've given it lip service out of reverence for its place in film history and honestly to maintain my serious film fan card. The truth is that I hate this movie. It's pretentious, self-indulgent, and boring. Capital letters boring. I have voted against 2001 at every step of this tournament. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid makes me laugh and feel unease at the coming end of things. Mm -hmm. Once Upon a Time in the West thrills me and makes me feel hope for justice in a corrupt world. The Graduate makes me feel lost, then found, then lost again. The Apartment makes me feel chivalry isn't dead and that nice guys don't always finish last. Those were all of the films, of course, that 2001 vanquished Mm. on its way here to the final four. 2001 A Space Odyssey makes me feel nothing. I know it won't win this matchup, but I guess that's the way it crumbles, cookie-wise. Beautifully written. Well done. Beautifully written. Well, well, well done, Dave. And yes, beautifully written. Rob Steger, a little more succinct, says, I doubt anyone ever said, let's get high and watch The Apartment, but I'm voting for it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't close, Billy Wilder uh, fans. Apologies to Dave Allen, 71% to 29%. Psycho and Dr. Strangelove just a little bit closer. Psycho still running away with it, 63% to 37%. So those films were in our top six seeding. They made it to the final four. This isn't like the real college basketball final four where you got a bunch of Cinderella's making it to the tournament. These are the blue bloods. And now we've got the bluest bloods of all. The two films we had ranked at the top, the two films that the selection committee, in this case, myself and Sam, felt would end up duking it out at the end. We thought it would be between 2001 and Psycho. And despite facing some great titles along the way, like those you just heard in Dave's message, here they are. They're the last two standing. You can only pick one. I I don't recall if a few moments ago we really got your pick. Do you have a clear favorite of these two? Of those two? I'm going to go psycho. Really? Yeah. Because, because I like Dave. Dave wrote so well. You like Dave. Uh, that <laughs> You're going to support him. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, but I have a very big underdog, you know, empathy with these things. And, you know, it's not going to win. So that's why I vote for it. And also, psycho was an early mind bender for me, you know, as, as a high school kid. I mean, I. Sure. You know, when you can, you know, it was when I was running out to every, the minute I got my driver's license, I was out to UW Parkside as often as I could be outside Racine, threading up a 16 millimeter copy of whatever they had, you know, and and Hitchcock was, you know, because Hitchcock is the most conspicuous directing you can find as a, as a high schooler. And so, you know, my, my experience with everything from 39 steps to psycho at that age it's just it's still it's still in me now i don't i don't I, I i won't say i'm done with these movies but i need to take a break but the impact was huge it was huge on the culture too 
in 2001, I love for other reasons, and there's wonderful things in it. I, I don't disagree with Dave. I think um, it's meant to make you feel relatively hopeless, <laughs> that film. I don't understand. Maybe I insignificant. Ne- I never understood <laughs> Roger Ebert's line on it, that it, it's sort of soul-stirring in, a, in any kind of affirmative way. I just think it's soul-crushing uh, that, you know, it's not up to – it's all being handled on a higher level, you know, but I mean, you know, this is yeah. more of a question for theological discussion and debate. It's it. But yeah, of the two, I'd go psycho, you know, it's just, uh, okay. yeah. How about you? It's a tough one. It's a tough one for me, especially because I have a little bit of recency bias as we talked about psycho did a sacred cow review just a month or so ago here on the show and very happy with that discussion enjoyed so much revisiting that film and talking about it and got so much more out of it, seeing it again. I really can't remember the last time I saw it. So it, it felt like a first time viewing to me Hmm. in many ways. And that was fantastic. Now I, unlike you, I don't know what this says about our respective psychologies, Michael, but you said you tend to be more of a root for the underdog kind of guy. I'm actually the opposite. I'm the guy who watches sporting events where I don't have a favorite team in it, and I root for the favorites. And part of that is because they're expected to win. So when they don't, I feel badly for them. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's how I view it. Now, I'm not sure that Stanley Kubrick and Hal need my support here in Film Spotting Madness, but all I can say is even having watched it for the first time in college and recognized it as this monumental masterpiece, there was a little bit of doubt. There was, there was that voice in the back of my head sometimes saying like, like Dave, isn't, isn't it kind of pretentious? Isn't it kind of self-indulgent? Isn't it kind of boring? All I can say now is that when we revisited this, and this is the sacred cow famously where my voice went out. I completely lost my voice. Josh still doesn't believe it. He thinks I was doing a bit (laughs) because I I wasn't up to the challenge of talking about 2001, but you came on the show and you and Josh had to do the show just the two of you because I literally couldn't speak. I was, I was there watching you guys talk, but I couldn't speak, but I didn't have that reaction at all. Reconsidering the film. I, yes, I understand that reaction to it, but I found it. I don't know if I found it soul stirring. I found it stirring and certainly intellectually provocative and incredibly made. And that film for me is still an achievement that, that I am going to rate slightly higher. Yeah. No, I can see that it's on. This is a really close call. That's just, yeah. I mean, it's a sadistic proposition to have to choose between those two, but, uh, absolutely. Uh, um, it also just takes you back to a time, whether you're alive then or not, when a film that still is the most radical, big budget, huge box office success that I can think of, you know, a movie like that could actually, you know, often when movies become sensational and, and make mm-hmm. a sensational amount of money, uh, it's because of something other than confusion uh, to some and puzzlement you know i mean i mean there was a lot of it's just non-narrative enough in its appeal that you just sort of can't believe that there was a time when a movie like that and there really isn't any other movie like that but (laughs) but where where it could get you know it could people just went because there was so much talk about it yes you know and and 
I remember taking my son when he was about 11 or 12 to that over at one of the music box revivals when they had just struck their new print. Yep. The 70 millimeter is when I saw it. Beautiful. And, and you know, he fought uh, like uh, anybody would at age 11 or 12 or most people, fought against a lot of it uh, uh, toward the end. Some of the uh, some of it, you know, where it really wigs out toward the end was difficult. But, but just to kind of re- be reminded at how completely effective – that middle section with Hal is yes, uh, and, and how, how really uh, gripping and kind of perfect that prologue is the dawn of man. You know, that, that was, it was great to see that with fresh eyes. So yeah, yeah. It's uh, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. It's an interesting movie. (laughs) It is an interesting movie. The understatement of the year here on film spotting. You can vote now, pick your winner, filmspottingmadness.com. Next week, we will crown that new champion. We will also get into the results of our bracket prediction contest. That's the one open to all of our listeners and also the internal one where we play a little game and the loser has to watch the latest Adam Sandler Netflix movie. It is, as I said last week, Michael, looking pretty clear that Josh is going to be the one again. He will have to take in and give us a short review. I mean, I don't want to listen to a longer review. He's going to give us a short review of Murder Mystery 2. Yeah, I love titles that try like that one does. You know, what's called Murder (laughs) Mystery it's like it's like the SEO language, you know, uh-huh. uh, triumphant. You know, I don't. Uh, there you go. <laughs> For all your madness-related needs, it is filmswattingmadness.com. What's going on? I'm making a piece. It's a very major piece. Very major. He's a genius. He was always incredibly creative. A lot of people are creative. That's Michelle Williams in the trailer for Showing Up, the latest from director Kelly Reichert. It's Reichert's eighth feature going back to 1994's River of Grass, and it's her fourth film with Williams and her sixth set in Oregon. Williams plays Lizzie, a sculptor with an upcoming exhibition. Joining her in the ensemble, recent Oscar nominee Hong Chow, John Majaro, Andre Benjamin, and another recent Oscar nominee, Judd Hirsch. It's another collaboration for Reichert as well with writer Jonathan Raymond, who co-wrote the script with her. Michael, we're going to share some thoughts on the film just a little bit later. But first, let's get to my recent conversation with Kelly Reichert on her visit to Chicago. It's a movie that starts with the art. The opening credit sequence shows early watercolor renderings of Lizzie's sculptures. So I started there as well. You watch Williams in this performance her character is someone who isn't overly joyful or expressive. She seems to be someone who carries the weight of the work she's trying to prepare and the burdens, if you will, of family and friends. And then you do see these figures that are so expressive and exuberant. I was really curious what the process was in deciding what those sculptures would look like, what form they would take and whether or not, Kelly Riker and Jonathan Raymond had a specific vision in mind during the script writing process, or did it evolve? Well, I wrote the script with Jonathan Raymond, and we have known of Cynthia Latte's art. Well, John and Cynthia go way, way back, but I've known about her art for a long time, too. She's a Portland sculptor, and she I guess she would call herself a ceramicist. I'm not sure. Uh, But all the various houses in Portland that you go to will have a Cynthia from some moment in time. And they're 
characters that are in motion, her figures, and they, you know, they're not beautiful in certain ways. They're not like pristine or, um, I mean, I find them beautiful, but they're not, they're not polished. They're not finished. They're, they're rough and jagged and could be interpreted differently from different viewers. Um, so anyway, we wrote the script with Cynthia's work in mind for Lizzie. Hong Chow plays the part of Joe and the work for Joe is the artwork of Michelle Segre, who works out of the Bronx and does large sculptures and with different materials, yarn, leather, mushrooms, organic dried foods. Um, well, I don't know if they're organic. Let's just say dried foods, different uh, materials. And it's uh, Lizzie, Michelle Williams, sort of works at a de- at her table and Joe's work is much more physical and sort of takes her whole body to mm-hmm. work with. Yeah, I wanted to ask you specifically about Joe's work as well, because there are a lot of very subtle hierarchies and, and power dynamics at play in the movie. And it seems to me not by accident that you've got Joe, who's Lizzie's best friend, but also in some ways her rival, it seems. And this this power dynamic is one where Lizzie's the tenant and she's the landlord. So she inherently has some authority, let's say, over her. And if you're a little bit insecure as an artist, which many artists are, and you see your your friend and rival kind of doing these very grandiose, seemingly ambitious projects, that's something that could maybe yeah. take its toll on you a little bit, um, make you and your work feel smaller. Yeah, I'm not sure that rival is the right words for them. I think they both really, and I don't, oh God, I would never think of uh, Michelle's work as grandiose. Like it's um, large scale and it's colorful and it's has a real free kind of uh, feeling like it it takes up a room. And um, Lizzie's work, you more have to go over and look at Mm -hmm. in a different way. But I think of these two characters as that they really admire each other's Mm -hmm. work and and that their work is different enough that they're not you know it's not like someone's going to take someone's idea or something like that i mean there are definite struggles but i also see it as like lizzie's a character where you know when her anxiety of whatever it is which might be about having a show or finishing meeting a deadline like we john and i were always talking about her in terms of being like a trapped badger in a way where her anxieties like shoot out and into different directions or maybe you know in that things come easier for joe and joe mm-hmm. just by the nature of her personality they're yes. just really different people yeah no that that's the sense is it it could almost be read as frustrating, perhaps. This isn't something yeah. that's said, but yeah. uh, frustrating for an artist like Lizzie to see someone like Joe who seems to make it effortless. Yeah. And then on top of it, she's doing these things that have a, a grander scale anyway. So right. without making a value judgment on it uh, or, or favoring yeah. one yeah, type yeah. of art versus the other, you, you did want that juxtaposition a little bit, it would seem, in terms yeah. of the type and the scale of the work. Yeah, well, just that they're different. One is sort of like getting into the nitty gritty of something and the other one is, uh, you know, up on a ladder or has to like throw her whole body into wrapping a piece of foam around something, you know? Yeah. So um, movies that are about artists, whether based on real or, or fictional and any kind of art, a lot of times with movies, you can fake 
that element. You know, you can you can lip sync or do some things with camera work and editing to make it seem as if we believe this person is really this incredible mm -hmm. artist. But you can't really fake that with with sculpting. I mean, we yeah. have to we have to really see Michelle Williams' hands there yeah. doing doing right. the work. How did you go about making that authentic? Uh, well, I didn't go about as much as Michelle did. Uh, you know, we started off just sending her a big clunk of clay and she was doing these zoom sessions with Cynthia Latte about just really just having months to get comfortable having her hands in the clay and making stuff. And then, so they worked together for a long time virtually. And then Michelle came and spent time with uh, her at her studio. And likewise, Joe was working with Michelle Segre. So they had time to become really familiar with, in Michelle's case, with the clay and practice and just so she could start to feel at home with doing what she could do with uh, adding on or taking off of Cynthia's stuff. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask you about collaboration as an artist. I, I won't I won't spoil the scene or get into too many details, but these sculptures we see have to be glazed in a mm -hmm. kiln. And Andre Benjamin here plays, I think, the kiln master is the yeah, correct right. terminology. There's a crucial scene where we see her work come out of the kiln. And I was struck by the beauty and the terror mm -hmm. of that moment, yeah. right? There's a lot of, um, yeah, there is the unknowable element of what you're ceramic pieces come out mm -hmm. of the kiln looking like you can pick your glazes and the kind of heat you want and whether it's salt or like, I mean, there was so much to learn about it. I could, you know, keep learning about it forever, but there is this mysterious element that's outside of your control mm -hmm. that you give over to the, uh, to the gods and you're, you know, hopefully pleasantly surprised or you might not be when, this reminds me that, you know, I people keep asking me like the beginning threads of the movie and I keep forgetting about this, but really early on, I have a couple of friends who are really into ceramics and pottery, really, I should say. And every time I was with them, they talked about the sort of politics of like who's getting the good kiln space and who is not and who gets, you know, yeah. you're not really supposed to be selling your stuff if you're using this studio, but she is selling her stuff and she's getting more turns at the kiln and and it's because she's going out with the kiln guy and there was all this stuff. Yeah. And that was an early, I've, I've completely forgotten about it, but that was a, an early thing in my mind was just like, oh my God. There's some hierarchy in yeah. everything. <laughs> yeah, those are those py power dynamics yeah. the movie yeah, yeah. deals with, I think, right, so right. so beautifully. I mean, mm -hmm. it's not a world I know, mm -hmm. but yeah. it all feels right, yeah, including right. lines like maybe my favorite line in the film. Mm -hmm. She's getting a program? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? uh, James LaGrose, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that, that moment, I want to go back, you know, excluding the distractions and uh, other forces in your life that may be intruding while you're making the art as a, as a sculptor. She mostly mm. gets to do that in isolation. She gets to yeah, have control, right? right? Yeah. And then all of a sudden you relinquish it. <laughs> you relinquish yeah. it to the kiln master. You relinquish it to the kiln and those yeah. mysterious forces, as you said. And that's the art she's chosen. So yeah. she understands that. That's that's part of the yes. deal. Yeah. Now, filmmaking strikes me yes. as one of those artistic processes that is inherently collaborative. Correct. You look at 
the IMDb page for showing up and just leaving out the cast. I think there's a hundred names that, that were involved with this film. And obviously mm. depending on the scale of the yeah. film that can go yeah. up or down, you're obviously a filmmaker and have been doing this for a while. You've also spoken previously about how much you enjoy that, that collaborative process. What's the balance for you of mm. that, that beauty and terror as far as yeah. being able to control what you can control, but, but being willing to, um, to give up to those forces. Yeah. Uh, different at different stages, you know, I'm collaborating with John Raymond and, you know, John's, creating something he's going to have to let go of and it's going to be in someone else's hands, you know? And so we're working together alone, sharing things back and forth. So ask a screenplay writer how they feel about that. Right. Like, believe me. <laughs> um, but, you know, I enter, you know, I'm working with, uh, in this case, April Napier for a long time, the costume designer and the, in Tony Gasparro, the production designer who helped me create this entire school. Mm -hmm. So there was like, you know, Art had to be made to fill the whole school. It was an empty space when we went there. Hmm. So there was a lot of artist work coming in, a lot of artists working for us. But I have a long, big collaboration with Christopher Blavelt, and that phase yes, comes Michelle. and I start shaking. But just even on the crew right. end of things. So, But then, you know, you get in the editing room and you kind of get back to solo, which is maybe closer to, um, you know, I'm alone in a room with what I made. And then you, you know, have, you know, on the one hand, in the collaborative part, there's just so many things that happen that you, as much as you plan, you can't have control of. So many personalities, so many things happening. You know, I think for an artist like Cynthia, who works by herself alone in a room, that like conceiving what my job is would be very almost impossible for her. And so, you know, there's all kinds of things that are difficult. But just to say in the collaborative part of it, whenever something goes wrong, there's someone else to blame. But, uh, you know, in the uh, in the editing room, you can only, you know, well, I have an assistant, so I can I try to blame him for things that go well, wrong. I, I did want um, to ask you about that specifically, because, as you said, long list of collaborators, you've had regular collaborations. Editing is something you have done consistently for a while on your own or with an assistant. What is it about editing specifically? Mm -hmm. There's something that you do like that isolation or let's say a little more control. I just like editing. And I like figuring out how things get put together. And I like when I'm working on the script, I like thinking about how I'm going to shoot. And then when I'm working with Chris and I'm sort of going through what I want to do, you know, like we're usually we're talking about a setup that there's like five setups and I know what the first three are and what the fifth one is. And the fourth is a whole. And like, how do I get from three to five, you know, mm. and I'll be working that out with Chris and we always talk about the cut and I think in cutting you for me it's kind of formed how I would form a sequence or you know whatever so I just I like editing and I and the amount of space you leave in between things is uh changes everything and um and I do get kind of trapped too much in my own rhythms I think on the downside of working by myself but I don't know. I just, I like, there's a lot to be discovered and things could go together. And these films, things could go in different ways. And I mean, early on, I was the editor because we couldn't afford an editor. And then I just got used to it. And I couldn't imagine, I mean, sitting in a room and watching someone else be at the controls and I'm just sitting there or yeah. whatever, coming by to see a cut. It just doesn't really appeal to me. I, okay. I would rather just do it. Yeah. Well, I can imagine maybe a different type of filmmaker that's 
shooting a lot of coverage and doesn't really know what they want. It isn't maybe mm. thinking like an editor. Mm. They like that fresh set of eyes. You, yeah, you kind of know. You know what you want, right? But I mean, I can see where a fresh set of eyes is a good thing for sure. But I mean, even Ben Mercer, who's the assistant, isn't a fresh set of eyes because he's always the script supervisor now. So mm. we, you know, you can bring in fresh eyes. But I can see why people love working with someone. But I, I don't know. I like, I like editing as. I, yeah. I really like it. Yeah. As usual, I enjoyed yeah. the film and Thank I really you appreciate very your much. time. Thank you. You know, I'm sick of not having hot water, Joe. It's such a total drag. It's such a shitty thing to do to a person. I'm sick of it. Have a great night. My thanks again to Kelly Reichert, her third appearance here on Film Spotting. Michael, you are, like myself and Josh, a big fan of Reichert's work. Her first cow was your number two film of 2020. It was my number two film of 2020 as well. What did you think of showing up? I liked it very much. I don't know if it really is ideal placement if you've just seen first cow and then to come into this, which is, I don't want to say first cow was more plot dependent or easier or, or really anything. I mean, because it's very much her film unmistakably just as this one is. But I, there's something about Reichert's touch. The heartbeat of her movies is very is it's got a very interesting effect on the viewer. I think because I mean this is this is a film built all around Michelle Williams' character Lizzie, and it's it's a you know she is in a kind of a low level sweat because she has a deadline to to make you know to create the work and get it ready to show, and there's a lot of things in her life conspiring against her and she's a very tetchy character you know she's got uh, all too familiar to most of us i think you know the small kind of like envy points and sort of grudges and and uh, yes you know just 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 beef with you know low level with difficulty everything from her cat to her landlord to her family right and yet for a film built around that kind of personality and that under a certain amount of pressure there's something about the filmmaking that is absolutely kind of pulse lowering in the best way with her work. She just it just says settle down. We're gonna just gonna spend time with these with this somewhat difficult character. Not difficult to understand, just just not conventionally easy company. And her work, I think, oh, oh, high among almost any other filmmaker I can think of, pays off so well on a second viewing, even if it's like a day later or two weeks later or whatever. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know. I, I'm very strong on it. It um, She's a really alert humanist as a filmmaker. And, and yeah. she, she just knows how to kind of set a tempo and vary it in a way that most people just will never learn. <laughs> I, I really like not only that phrasing there, but the idea of this film sort of being pulse lowering in the right way. I'll say, Appropriate for its visual art milieu, the film entreats us to carefully observe. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. you're so right. Like any great film or with any great filmmakers, a lot of times that second viewing is way more rewarding or even more rewarding. But that's so true with this film because I did see it a second time after being at the screening that we both attended in prep for the interview. And then a couple weeks later, about two weeks later, saw it with an audience and did a Q and a with Reichert afterwards here in Chicago. And the list of notes, the moments and things I jotted down during that second viewing, it was filled 
two pages, Michael, with things that I did not catch Mm. the first time. And it is those quietly observed moments that really stuck with me. The movie makes a lot out of a relationship. I'll call it that, (laughs) that Michelle Williams character Lizzie has with a pigeon a pigeon that she takes in. And it, it's funny. I don't know if you had this experience because I know you talked to Reichert as well. Kelly Reichert did not want to talk about the pigeon. <laughs> she was very clear about wanting to avoid getting into that topic. I think because she just didn't want to have to explain it. She didn't want to get into her intentions with it. And I get that with any filmmaker, right? I'll just say this about the pigeon, which does become quite a character in the movie. I noticed the second time, Michael, that the movie, after showing us those watercolor drawings I mentioned that we see on the wall, the early renderings of her work that she's going to produce, we see her in the studio, her garage studio working. And we actually hear the sound that the first time I'm not paying any attention to this, I, I go, okay, yeah, there's there's a pigeon or two outside. But we actually hear the sound of the pigeon. The camera pans over to the pigeon just underneath the garage door. Mm-hmm. So Lizzie, mm-hmm. when she works, keeps the garage door just slightly open. Of course, what's the progression of this film? A pigeon, I'm not suggesting it's the exact same pigeon, but it could be. It's a pigeon. It's outside the garage door. She's working, right? Later on, The pigeon has now encroached on her territory. She's got the pigeon next to her in the studio Mm -hmm. as she's working. Mm -hmm. And then where does it end up? She's working in the house. She's now working in the house with the pigeon next to her because the garage is too cold (laughs) for the pigeon. She's trying to take good care of. So this separation between her life and art, to whatever extent it can be compartmentalized. You know, I work at the garage. That's my place. And my home is my home. That's been broken down. (laughs) That's been eliminated completely. Just as all of these personal relationships and the associated concerns infringe on her work, she steps out early to call her brother in a scene. Right. And she steps outside the garage. Maybe that was a deliberate choice. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe it's something Kelly Reichert just decided to do. But I thought it was notable and it struck me, especially after making this connection with the pigeon, that the camera stays inside. But Lizzie steps outside that garage to make that phone call to her brother. Early on, she's trying to she's trying to have those barriers, right? And over the course of the film, we see how it's impossible. Yeah, I, I, I suppose if the film is about anything, one any one thing, it's it's just about how this character Lizzie has certain ideas about how she's going to get this work done, and everything in daily life for her is going to mess that up. And it's really more about like, okay, what happens if I actually reluctantly embrace some of this chaos, even if it's low level one pigeon chaos, you know? but it's, mm-hmm. you know, I think, I think it's just in a way she's uh, Riker's probably making a film about uh, and writing a story with Raymond about, about what it's, uh, you know, what, what she's been through just when you're working on a project, maybe on a deadline. And, you know, of, co- of course you have to kind of deal with the rest of your life right on top of it, right in the middle of it, it's always up in your face, you know? And she's a very, she's got, she has a low bar for chaos, but she, uh, uh, Lizzie does, but that's also where some of the comedy comes in. I mean, it basically is a very kind of sidewinding offhand it is. in the margins yeah. kind of comedy. And that's, it, that's, I that's, wanted to ask you about that. That's a little different for her. I mean, I mean, there's, it I, is. I remember some of that with first cow too, in that everybody in first cow, when they taste the oily cakes, 
they all have a different sort of memory or, or uh, idea of what, you know, what it is, you know, what, what it reminds them of. And I mean, there's, there's some, there's some clever writing in the film like that, but I think this is, I suppose is Reichert's, um, lightest weight comedy. But, I think it has to or, be uh, lightest. Maybe wa- old joy would be yeah, closest. But. Yeah. It's closest to old joy. That's a good, that's a good, yeah. Yeah. To throw it back to that. Yeah. That, that would, and, but but I think it's not like a big lurch. It's just a just a it's just a subtle no. shift in emphasis. Yeah. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you about the humor, and it sounds like it worked for you on that level because we saw it at the screening room here, where it's just what maybe twenty critics in the room, and I came in not knowing anything about this, and I talked to record about this. I knew her. I knew Michelle Williams. I knew it was about an artist. I knew it was called Showing Up. When I think about Reichert's work. I do think about very serious films, First Cow, Meek's Cutoff, Wendy and Lucy. These are pretty heavy films in a lot of ways. So I'm not coming in expecting to laugh at all. Right. And I I didn't laugh much, partly because I felt like the environment was such that maybe it wasn't the best venue for it. I kind of wished later, I did wish later that I could have seen it with an audience, which I eventually got to. And there were definitely more laughs there, Michael. But I think part of it too, Josh and I walked out of that screening talking about this, that I think it's one of those cases where with certain subjects and with certain characters, especially when it is such a specific environment as this is, this Oregon College of Arts and Crafts environment and this this contemporary art world, but also a very Portland, Oregon contemporary art world that you almost feel like this is its own subculture with its own language and different dynamics. We talked, of course, with Reichert about the hierarchies at play, and you kind of feel like you maybe don't have permission to laugh because if you're not part of it, you know, are you laughing at them? Are you kind of mocking them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's so unemphatic about like about trying to right. get the laugh out of an audience because it is yes, not exactly. it is not gag funny. It's texture it's funny. Not. It, it reminded me of uh, Richard Linklater's Slacker, just in the way that that you got to know uh, his uh, a slice of Austin, Texas, mm-hmm. in that film. The way that Reichert in several films now, but maybe especially this one. Uh, you know, has sort of given us a, a sense, an impression, a mosaic, anyway, of uh, Portland. But I, I love. I also love the. I knew nothing about the Oregon College of Art and Craft, where I didn't either. Where they where they filmed much of this uh, film, and, and a lot of it set there in this art school, and it closed up in 2019. So there's a there's kind of a, already a weird sense of loss of it. But they managed to kind of get in there and reopen it for the purposes of the film. And it wasn't like torn down. I think it's just been repurposed for for some other use. But but it was a wonderful kind of active, kind of like creative revival in a way. And and it got to be kind of a dream version of the school. And it, it is. It's great. It, it's not. It feels like a very welcoming but slightly goofy place. You know. And again, mm-hmm. not played for laughs or or cheap laughs. Let's say. But uh, yeah. No. I'm. You know what? I'm going to see this damn thing a third time. I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I would like to as well. I think it's one of those films that is only going to grow in my estimation here as we get through the year. Yeah. I mean, right now I'm going to, I have to end this. I have to, I'm going to go watch it right now. So I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave and <laughs> right watch now. it right now. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's get Michael out of here. Showing up is currently playing in limited release. It expands next weekend, including right here in Chicago. That is our show. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and letterbox. I'm at film spotting. Michael is at Phillips Tribune. 
over at filmspotting.net or filmspottingmadness.com. You can vote in the championship round of Film Spotting Madness 2023. Help us crown the best film of the 1960s. For show t-shirts or other merch, go to filmspotting.net slash shop. Our show is listener supported. You can join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com. For as little as $5 a month, you can listen to the show early and ad-free. Plus, you get a weekly newsletter and monthly bonus shows. Our recent bonus show, a draft of the 1993 movie year. So we each had to pick five films from 1993 that we thought were the best. Michael, that, that show was a little nutty, a little nutty for film spotting. And Josh... I'm not sure Josh still knows where his head is after that episode. <laughs> Sam Sam took the piano and all hell broke loose. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. Good times. Though. I got to catch up on that one. That's one I have not that, – that's the uh, a recent one I have not caught up with. So it's, uh, it's well, on me. Well, if you listen to that, you might be one of the people giving us a little heat for the fact that somehow Steven Spielberg's 93 output, both Jurassic Park and Schindler's <laughs> List, went undrafted. Undrafted. Yeah, we didn't pick them. Okay. We didn't pick either of them. Right. Yeah. But hey, a pretty good movie year. Let's just let's just say All that. Right, good. I'm gonna I'm gonna check this okay. out for my own edification. From the archive, some episodes you can check out. Two more interviews with Kelly Reichert. I talked to her back in 2020 about First Cow. That's episode 786. I talked to her about Certain Women, also starring Michelle Williams. That's episode 608. Plus reviews of Reichert's films going back to Meek's Cutoff in 2011. 347 was that episode. And Michael, you were there for episode 500. Brian Johnson, the filmmaker, was part of that episode. Big live show at the Music Box. Dana Stevens as well joining us. We did our top five films of the film spotting era. Pretty sure Meek's Cutoff made my list. Good. We also have some Ben Affleck directed reviews. You could check out his debut in 07, Gone Baby Gone, episode 183. The Town, episode 318. Of course, we did our top five Boston movies. And yeah, we talked about his best picture-winning Argo, episode number 418, plus the top five movies directed by their stars. And really, of all the movies, I would have told you, if you had said, you and Josh are going to end up having a fight about this film, I would have said, you're crazy. Why would we fight about that? We had a pretty decent battle about Argo. Really? We disagreed. Okay. I liked it. Okay. I liked it, I think, even more than you did. Okay. Michael, it sounds like you kind of begrudgingly are well, okay with Argo. You know, if you don't, Josh was Josh was pretty low. Low on it. Low. Low. Well, I would I would get rid of him at this point. I, I you know you, I mean I'm I mean I'm <laughs> yeah. here. Uh, you know I, you're here. I, I'll even if I don't agree, I'll agree just to get along. Yeah. So you know I'll be all right. Fair enough. I I really like how that sounds. <laughs> that is filmspottingfamily.com. Out streaming this weekend, you can see more sports. Boom boom. The world versus Boris Becker. This is a documentary about the '80s tennis great from director Alice Gibney. That's on Apple TV Plus. I do want to see the Boris Becker doc, but I want to see another streaming doc even more. Big Jason Isbell fan and a new film directed by Sam Jones, who did the very good Wilco doc, I Am Trying to Break Your Heart. He has chronicled the making of Jason Isbell's recent album. The documentary is called Running With Our Eyes Closed. That is new on HBO Max. You can see Air. Mild recommendation from both of us. Yeah, you can yeah, see I'm going three paint. stars. I'm going three stars on Air. Yeah. Yeah. I I think I'm going three stars. I'm I'm definitely going three stars on paint. Are you two and a half? Michael? Two and a half, yeah. Two and a half. Best, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, we're we're going we're going na on the Super Mario Brothers movie. 
Is I'm that not, what we're doing? Because I have not seen I'm it. I'm not going to go. I mean, I, I, I don't have anything against it, you know? I mean, I actually, you know, I didn't have anything against Dungeons and Dragons. And people, a lot of people like that a lot. People seem to really didn't like see it. it. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet. Just life is, inter, you know, it interferes sometimes. You know? All of my kids, and I have kids ranging in ages from junior high up to college, they cannot wait for Super Mario Brothers. I'm not sure if they're all watching it unironically <laughs> but they all really want to go and think i'm a snob and terrible at my job nice they might be right about one or both of those this is things why we in have, limited this release is why we have children <laughs> uh-huh in limited release the new one from the dardens tori and lokita is out that's playing at the music box also how to blow up a pipeline which we will talk about next week on the show along with that next film in our sight and sound top 100 marathon Rainer Werner Fassbinder's Ali Fear Eats the Soul. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, the show wouldn't go. Our PAs are Betty Lavandero and Veronica Phillips. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. Huge thanks to Michael Phillips sitting in this week getting a lot of viewing done, talking about multiple films with me. A pleasure as always. Happy to do it. Happy to do it. Where can listeners find your work? Well, they, they'd have to find it at chicagotribune.com slash movies. Probably better off just sticking with Twitter, at Phillips Tribune. And I'm on the radio most weeks, 9 a.m. Saturdays, WFMT, WFMT.com, for Soundtrack, the film music show I do a little segment on. And, uh, yeah, that's it. That's enough of me. That's enough. That's enough? Well, they're going to get more because we're going to have some more shows with you coming up here in the next few months and i'm looking forward to that as always for michael and for film spotting i'm adam kempinar thanks for listening this conversation can serve no purpose anymore goodbye Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.